The scripture text for this message comes from Genesis, chapter 2, verses 15 through 19. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. With you, open them to uh, the second chapter of Genesis. We are in a series on the five avenues of purpose that God has given to us that he gave in Eden. Two weeks ago, I preached on Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. One of the avenues of purpose is our work. What we contribute to this world to keep the garden, to bring out what God has given us here. It's not just in employment. It's just not just in paid obligations. It's, it's what we contribute Secondly, last week I preached on verse 16. You're going to catch a pattern here in a minute. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From every, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. That's not just the beginning of the next verse. That is a verse in itself, and it is a thought in itself. God created you very intentionally. And He did not create you just to be used in the world. He did not create you just for everyone else's good. He did not create you just for your own fulfillment. He created you for himself. We were created very intentionally, like we are, by God for himself. And if you never discover your purpose in this world, I want you to remember this avenue of purpose. As long as you are alive, as long as God keeps you alive, you are fulfilling that purpose. You are created for him. He is enjoying you. Now, let us complete the sentence and go on to the next thought. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Probably a better title for this message would be The Purpose in Limits. Because I want to tell you this morning, and I want to rehearse for myself, why God gives us limits and the freedom that is to be found within limits that will go away if we exceed those limits. First of all, when you read this verse, if you've read the, read the next chapter of Genesis, as most of you have, you may come to a question. And the question is this. God said, You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. And it doesn't look in the next chapter like they died. What happened there? I want to tell you, they did die. I don't know how many of you were raised on a farm. But in the old days, you didn't go down to Albertsons and say, I like five chicken breasts, please. You went out and grabbed a chicken. And you grabbed an axe. And you did the deed... 
Now I want you to remember what happened after you cut that head off. And it took took off like crazy, didn't it? We had a neighbor, Roger Adams, who we lived in a neighborhood. We didn't live on a farm, but he'd do this, and he never had an accident. He just did the old yank method. I'm sorry. I hope you've not had breakfast yet. But he just reversed the reversed the motion, and the thing would just. Ta- I mean, little boys would pay to see that. He never charged, but we would do another chicken, Roger. We love to see you do chickens. And they'd, you know, and then they'd fix it and eat it. But this thing would take off like crazy. You know what? You've heard the expression, you're running like a chicken with his head cut off. We've got a whole world. Now, listen to this. Listen to what I'm saying. Of people who are dead, who are still operating. I watched a, I watched a, a talk show yesterday that made my hair stand on end. Or the day before, I think it was. I mean, I couldn't believe I was living on the same planet. And I just kept thinking to myself, there's dead people talking. I mean, there are people who are desperate to find something to fix their pain. They are desperate to find something of any boundary that will let them live on as they... And they're just flat out dead. Yes, they died. In the day that they exceeded their limits, they died. They're still walking around, but they're dead. They're without their head. They separated themselves from that very thing that gave them life. Okay, now let me just talk for a little bit about the two trees that were in the garden. First of all, if you look in Genesis 2.9, you will see better that both the trees that were, that were special trees. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. Now here are two trees that are special. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was this tree that was symbolic of all of the provision of God. It was called the tree of life. It had a sacramental character to it. This tree, incidentally, shows up two other places in the Bible. One in Acts 5.30 and other verses like it, when it says, and they hung Jesus on a tree. The other, in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, in paradise, in the scene, the tree of life is still giving of its fruit. The tree of life was that to which people went, Adam and Eve that reminded them all of the provisions of God. It was, a, it was an avenue of grace. We still go to the tree of life when we do communion and know that what flows from that tree is what gives us all that we need. It is symbolic of all of God's grace and forgiveness. It didn't have a magical quality to it. It was something that made the grace of God live. In my backyard, I had a tree that that I kind of knew what this is like. It was a big maple tree, a silver maple. And I would climb to the top of that tree almost every day and stand in the branches when the wind whipped me back and forth. It was like, thanks, God, all you've given me. And you've, I mean, it was just a, a, a symbol of all of the provisions of God. I just felt his warmth and his love when I was up there. But there was another tree in my backyard. It wasn't just a tree, it was a trellis. 
My mother was a rose grower. And there was this beautiful, delicate trellis where these vines with beauty and thorns wove around. Now, before I go on with this illustration, let me speak to another question you might have in thinking about this. You might say, well, God told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but how could they be held responsible if they didn't know what good and evil was? If they had not yet partaken of that, how could they know what good and evil was? Good and evil is not the same thing as right and wrong. Everybody knows what right and wrong is. If you turn, for example, to me uh, with me in uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. And let me show you why the fall was not required so that we could really know what evil is and we didn't know what it was before. Evil is not to be equated with a knowledge of wrong. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, it doesn't say since the fall, does it? It says since we were made, since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. You know what? I cannot remember my mom telling me, Joey, don't climb on that rose trellis. Because she didn't have to tell me. I knew it was wrong. Nobody had to tell me not to climb on that delicate, dangerous rose trellis. And no one has to tell us right from wrong. We Kant called it a priori categories. That is, without prior experience, there is a sense that all of us have of right and wrong. And you don't have to experience wrong before you know something's wrong. I knew climbing on that rose trellis was out of bounds. So I never did it. (laughs) Yeah, right. Adam is my father and Eve is my mother. You bet I climbed on it. You bet I crashed. And you bet I was hurt. But it wasn't because my mom told me not to. It was because I transgressed my own moral imperatives. Now, I want to spend a little time telling you about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because there's a lot of misunderstanding about this tree. And essentially, it addresses the rationalizations we have for addressing evil in our own lives, for living with evil in our own lives. There are three theories about this tree of good and evil. One is that it is a disjunctive. One is that it is an additive. And the other is that it is a conjunctive rationalization. Now, I'll tell you all three and then you can choose whichever one fits you. Number one, people say, well, we ought to eat 
of this tree and experience both good and evil because they are so radically different that then, through our objective reason, we can have our distance from it and not participate in it. Because anybody who knows good from evil, anybody who can see how widely different they are, will never participate in evil. This is a Greek line of thought. We get our scientific research from Greek, from Greek line of thought that says you transcend what you're looking at, you separate yourself from it, you don't participate in it, and therefore you can go to the truth and manipulate the truth. It works with material. It doesn't work with spiritual and emotional things. Let me tell you why. Because as evil as we know things are, we end up participating in them anyhow. Even when we know they're wrong. Let me tell you a Paul Harvey story about a man named Phineas. Phineas Taylor was born, I think, in 1810. And from the time he was born, he grew up into a little boy who was told by his grandfather that he was a landowner and that he should never let that go to his head. But his, his grandfather deeded to him, showed him the deed of this wonderful plot of ground that he owned called Ivy Island. He was a special little boy because he owned this wonderful piece of God's earth. Now, the grandfather said, don't let it go to your head. Don't act rich. Don't show off. Just know that it's yours. Well, he wouldn't do that. He would, by his own determination, never, never try to feel better than others. And when the neighbors heard that he was a landowner of this ivy island, they were so grateful that he would still play with their children. Yes, he would. He would. He wouldn't just feel so much better just because he was a landowner. So on it went, and while other little boys had, had dreams about inventions and so on and so forth, Phineas Taylor had this dream about someday seeing this piece of land that he owned being lord of the manor, because every acre of it was his. Finally, when he was ten years old, after relentless pleas, he talked his father into driving him to this piece of land. And the next day, after three sleepless nights, his father and the driver and he all climbed in to the buggy and went some miles down the road. And his father pointed across a lush green meadow to a line of trees and said, just beyond that line of trees is your land. Phineas Taylor jumped out of that cart and ran as hard as he could, wanting to cast his eyes on his land. When he got past that line of trees, he saw the most God-forsaken swamp land you've ever seen. Most of you have been over the big bridge going toward New Smyrna. You know the land right to the right? There were vines just clinging to dead limbs, trying not to be drowned. And as that young boy stood absolutely crushed, as all of his dreams dematerialized, his father and the driver 
laughed uproariously at one of the longest protracted practical jokes ever played. And when he went home, his grandfather very seriously congratulated him on his piece of land. When that boy grew up, he became a living con artist. As crushed and as embarrassed as he was, he spent the rest of his life trying to prove that all people were fools. He used his initials. His last name was Barnum. P.T. Barnum said there was a sucker born every minute and spent his life trying to prove it. As crushed as he was, as wrong as it was, his whole life was reliving that on other people. Just knowing good from evil does not exempt you from following the evil path. Paul himself in Romans 7 says, I do the very thing I hate. You understand? You know why? Because anyone that spends a great deal of time contemplating what is evil will be infected by what is evil. Listen to me, Christians. If you spend more time thinking about the devil than you do about the Lord, he's going to have his way no matter how much you hate him. Anybody that spends more time being afraid of what could happen rather than dreaming about what God wants to happen is caught up in the wrong road. Because evil translates from a horrible, distant, unfamiliar voice into one that is pleasing. You know, the Bible says the serpent was the most subtle creature in all creation. Cap Spence told me the other night about, uh, about a fifth man performing in the fifth gospel, and he said something very true. He said, you know, if Satan used his own voice, if he used a horrible voice, if he used an exorcist voice, he would not have nearly so much business. But he doesn't. He uses a friendly voice. He uses a familiar voice. He uses your voice. Anyone that contemplates evil for very long will adopt it. So just knowing good from evil does not exempt us from evil. And then God wanted us also to know not to go into that thing out of a rationalization that says, I can hang around evil but not participate in it. I can have it in close proximity but evil is an additive to life that I will not take. And I can hang around it and be exempt. That is a lie. If you will look in uh, chapter 3 of Genesis, you will see something. And I want you to know this was a large garden. There were very many trees in this garden. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Where was she in the garden? Right close to that tree, wasn't she? She never moved her body away from that tree. 
She hung around it and hung around it and hung around it, trying to resist it. You don't hang around things and try to resist them. You put as much geography as you can between the things that you're trying to resist in yourself. But she stood looking at it. Let me tell you something. Anytime we think that we are exempt from the world's temptations and we can be near them, we're wrong. Parents of teenagers, let me tell you something. If you think that you can send your kids to parties where there is booze and drugs and sometimes sex, and your kid gives you this line, look, I'm a Christian, I don't want to be unpopular, but I won't participate. If you buy that, I want to talk to you. Last night I called people idiots. I'm sorry for that. But it's thinking like an idiot. Who can resist hanging around that? You talking about peer pressure? It's like you guys buying Playboy for the articles. Yeah. Uh-huh. Our job in this world is to identify with Jesus Christ. To conform to him as his image. There are times when we go as a missionary into the world to share the love of God. And that's our mission. But if we believe that we have that identity so certain that we can hang around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and we can partake of that or not partake of that as we choose, we're not reading the cards right. You haven't read yourself right. It's just not possible. Remember, those of you who enjoy mythology, remember Hercules and Entius. Entius was one who was made from the ground. That's where he got his strength. He was made from the world. And Hercules wrestled Antius. And every time Hercules threw Antius down, Antius got stronger because he was at one with his source. And he came back and wrestled more. The only way Hercules defeated Antius was to lift him up separate from the world until he grew weaker and weaker and more exhausted. If you believe you can go to parties, if you can believe you can hang around in secular society and keep saying no, 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 and that's enough, and you go right back into the same atmosphere, what you're doing is making your opponent stronger and yourself weaker. We do not have, most of us, in the early stages of Christianity, an identity with Jesus Christ that is so sure, so clear, that we will not lose ourselves in tempting situations. There was a wonderful line in a play of Shakespeare's, Comedy of Errors. Um, Antiphilus of Syracuse is looking for part of his life. And somebody wishes him well in his contentment. And after this person goes away, Antiphilus of Syracuse stands there and says, He who wishes me well in my contentment wishes me well in something I have not got. I to the world, now listen to this, I to the world am like a drop of water that in the ocean seeks another drop who falling there to find his fellow forth, unseen, inquisitive, 
confounds himself. That is, he loses himself. He loses his own identity. We can no longer put our lives into the world unless it's on a mission for Christ. We can no longer mix and not lose our identity than a drop of water can stay isolated and identified in itself in the ocean. You understand? So therefore, when you hear the voice that says, look, you can hang around that stuff. It's not going to affect you. Get out of there. Get out as fast as you can. Because it's a lie. And the third lie is this. We can participate. We can we can try to be with evil so that we can, now listen to this, it's a conjunctive sense, we can use evil for good. Now, I've heard this a lot. I tell you what, yeah, I did that, but I did it for a good purpose. Yeah, I used that, but I used it for good. There's one person that can bring good out of evil. And he's not a person. He's God. Turn to... uh, Genesis 50, chapter uh, chapter 50, verse 20 with me. Let me show you this. We cannot voluntarily use evil for good because then we are thinking we can do something that only God can do. Look at this. Verse 19. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Now this is a good question. For am I... In God's place? That is, are you confusing us too? <laughs> As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. Now watch this. God can use evil and does use evil. And I'll tell you much more about this next year. But when we try to use evil, when we try to repay anger for anger, so that we can put somebody in their place because that's where they need to be, when we try to use manipulation because we need to get them to church somehow, when we try to heap guilt on our kids, thinking that if we load enough guilt on our kids, they will stay in line, and that's good. What we're doing is trying to take God's place. I'm saying, yeah, be strict, Yeah, always give an accounting. But you can't use negative to produce positive. It just doesn't work. You know what? We had this experience as a state four years ago. You know what we did? We said, I'll tell you what, education needs a lot of money. We're proud of our education system. You know what we can do? People are going to gamble anyhow. So let's just take all that gambling money and pour it into our education system. We're talking billions of dollars here. You know how much better our education system is going to be when we pour all of that gambling money into our education system. We'll use evil for good. Four years later, we're laying teachers off by the hundreds. Teachers can't buy kids paper. Schools don't have the money. Now, I'm not saying there's not a lot of wasted money in education. But I'm saying this, when we believe that, that using the methods of the world is better than taking responsibility ourselves, we're going down the wrong track.
And if there's payment that needs to be made, we need to make it. It is so important for us to realize how easy it is to just employ the ways of the world just for a second. Let me tell you what happened to me this week. I was just going on this mission trip, so I went down. We went down to the passport thing. And we, we uh, um, filled out the paper, you know, and, and the lady filling it out saw that the departure date was June 15th, and she said, I tell you what, let me just put June 5 down here, and that way your papers will get to you on time. And, and that's the way we do things. And I said, okay. As soon as I said that, I thought, I just gave her permission to lie on a piece of paper. That's not the departure date. But I thought, well, that's the way they do things. Okay, all right. This week, we get a call. That was two weeks ago. This week, we get a call. These papers aren't right. We're going to send them back to the local thing, have you sign here, and then we'll send it back, and then we'll send you your passport. So I go down to this office. And I look at this lady, and I said, look, if I didn't fill them out right the first time, why don't you tell me I didn't fill them out? See, I'm putting pressure on her, you know? And then I hear myself, listen to this, you won't believe this. I hear myself say, do you realize the departure date's June 5th? Are we going to get this back in time? <laughs> I lied. I'm caught up in this thing now. See? I'm caught up in it. Second time, I knew I'd lied. Did I take it back? Did I say, wait a minute, that's not June 5th. What am I doing? No, I didn't. Put the pressure, walked out. I got about mm, maybe five minutes of sleep that night. I thought, Hunter, what are you doing? You just lied to... So I went back the next day. I couldn't get there fast enough. Went back the next day, looked for that lady, called her over. Said, I need to ask for your forgiveness. She said, what for? I said, in the first place, I put pressure on you yesterday. And you were just trying to do your job. But in the second place, I lied to you. I can't believe it. I just said that this is departure on June 15th, it's not till June 15th. I just need to ask for your forgiveness for lying to you. It just became so apparent to me how easy it is to get caught up in that. Well, here's the point. The point is that God gives us limits so that we can be free. Because when we go outside those limits, guess what happens? We start either being having to remember everything we've said, you know, gosh, what I said, how'd I put that, you know, instead of just telling the truth, or we are reaping a bunch of real rotten stuff and praying for a crop failure. And that's no way to live life. There are three ways you can live life. You can live life in contentment with what God has given you within His limits. You can live life in correction because you've gone out of bounds and now you're paying for it and now you're trying to make it right. Or you can live life in condemnation. Those are the three ways. Now let me say two things that are valuable in the purpose of limits. Number one, God gives us limits so that we can learn contentment. Turn to, turn to Philippians chapter 4 with me for a second. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. This is Paul. First of all, in, chapter, in verse 6, he's, he's given advice. It says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now look at what he says in verse 11 about the results of those prayers on his life. 
Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. What a wonderful kind of life to live. Do you know what can threaten you when you learn to be content in whatever God has given you? Nothing. You got no worries. You got no regrets. You got nothing to remember. You know you have peace from God. The freedom that seems to be outside the boundaries He's given you is not freedom at all. It's exhaustion. There's nothing out there. Remember the story about the, the, the animal transport across the Pacific Ocean and the bird that escaped and flew off into what that bird thought was wonderful freedom. And hours and hours and hours later, here comes that bird back, flopping on the deck of that ship, totally exhausted, because there was nothing out there. You know what? If you're contemplating breaking a barrier right now that God's given you, let me tell you this. There's nothing out there. The provision that God has given you is within the limits. And this is where your freedom is. Every great philosopher in a long line, from Augustine, from Aquinas, Hegel, Locke, all of them have said, freedom does not equal license. As a matter of fact, license, doing anything you want, takes away your freedom. God has given us a great gift in His limits. Be content. And secondly, there may be some places where you've run up against a brick wall precisely because God wants to break it down for you. And the only way you can know is to ask. I heard a story about a little boy who was helping his dad in the garden. And one of these huge, huge weed trees, you know, had grown up. And this little boy swaggers over to this thing. And he bends down and he pulls on it and he pulls on it and he looks at his dad and says, I can't get it. And the dad looked at him and said, well, you haven't used all your strength. He goes back over to it and he pulls on it. You know how kids go, pull it. And his face is getting red and his eyes look like they're going to pop out any second. He's in for three seconds. He's quivering. He's sweating. He's just... He said, I can't do that. The dad looks at him and says, you haven't used all your strength. And the kid looks at him and says, I did too. I used everything I had. The dad said, no, you didn't. I've been standing right here beside you the whole time. Available to help you and you never ask. You haven't used all your strength. You understand? God wants you to use all your strength. That includes Him. Not just yours. That includes Him. That's why God gives us limits. And that's why He wants us to ask Him. Pray with me. God, You give us limits both for protection and for provision. So that we do not have to live lives of regret. Help us to determine right now to live within the limits that you've given us and not to partake of the tempting but exceedingly harmful fantasies that we entertain. The things that would put us in your place, 
the things that would help us walk away from you. If we have done that, Lord, help us to come to Jesus, to the tree of life, and ask for forgiveness. And again, to accept His life as our life and to live within those limits from now on. And help us to ask, to continue to ask, Lord, if this isn't as far as you want me to go, would you provide other places that I can go? And I will follow only insofar as you lead. And I will have only insofar as you give. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.